Bible. We'll begin our time in the Word together. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Jonah. I'm the youth pastor here at Redemption Hill, and uh, I'm honored to be asked to preach from the Word of God this morning um, to a church, to people that I love dearly, and it's exciting for me to be here. I, I am so pumped to open up the Word together with you guys um, and to, to use my gifts to hopefully edify you and encourage you this morning um, from the Word of God. So with that, I want to invite you guys to open your Bibles. We're going to dive in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to be looking at two verses this morning. Two powerful, life-changing verses that are pretty common to a lot of us who have been a part of the church, who, are, who have been believers for many years now. It's Romans 1 verses 16 and 17. So what we're going to do is I'm going to read the passage and then we're going to explain it. We're going to dive in and see this magnificent, rich truth for us this morning and how to live in light of such amazing truth. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul's writing, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray together before we begin our time. Father, we want to thank you again for this great morning where we can be together as your body, the body of Christ that you have sent your son to cleanse and purify through the blood of Jesus, our Savior and King. And Lord, as Joe prayed earlier, I, I pray now that you would just speak through me, that you would allow me to clearly articulate my words well from your word, God, that I would simply give you all the glory and that everyone listening here this morning, that we would have ears to hear from your word. Father, we thank you for Paul. We thank you for his life and the encouragement he is to us and now how we can imitate him in the life that he lived, a life of boldness and ambition. In your name we pray, amen. For us as humans, we love really to do a lot of things that are easy, that are, don't require a lot of work. We like things that are quick. We like things, especially now in the day and age of technology, where we can just have things that really in the palm of our hands. We can have answers. We can have things on our laptops, on our tablets, on our phones. We like things that are easy and accessible, that can save us time. But on the other side, we also do hard things in life. Not everything is easy. We do things hard. Like some of us will go to the gym and we push ourselves and we work hard in order for us to be strong. Some of us like to work on our homes or maybe work on our cars. Some of us spend long days of work where we get up early in the morning and we get after it with our jobs and we work hard, all with the purpose of reaching the next level. We want to we climb the ladder. We want to get more money. We want to help provide for our family. Maybe even there's good motivations in the hard things we do in life. Maybe it's because we want to supply food for those that we love. We want to get money so that we can support people in ministry, missionaries, people in the church. But the thing is, is we all do hard things. You know, I, I even this week did something hard that I wasn't able to do. I thought I could fix my radio in my car. For those of you who know, my car radio has been broken for about three months now. And I was fed up and thought, you know, I'm going to fix this thing. I had the confidence, I had the assurance, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to just watch it on YouTube. Everything's on YouTube now these days, so I figured I could do it. So I, you know, hop on YouTube and I try to fix my car. Little did I know just the complexity that goes into a radio. 
with all the wiring and all the power and the harnesses and everything involved, next thing I knew, I was just lost. You know, my car is just shredded. I've got like my radio over here. I got wires over here. The complexity of it, I was just lost. It was a hard thing that I could not figure out. I couldn't get to the bottom to. Long story short, I got my radio fixed. I had to get a new one. I took it in. Someone fixed it for, my, for me. But we do hard things in life. We do things that we think we can do because we see value in it. And as I was talking to a friend this week, really thinking deeply about what is the hardest thing in the life of a believer, sadly, to our own fault and discouragement, to so many of us, the hardest thing for us to do as a believer is share the gospel with someone. Why is it so hard to simply share the gospel with an unbeliever? Why is it so hard to simply talk about the name of Jesus Christ with someone that we don't really know, with a coworker, with a family member? Why is it so hard and we feel this pull to not want to mention the name of Christ? Maybe in settings or places where it's not the best or the most fitting, we feel this inclination to not be bold for our king. As if the power of Jesus Christ didn't even save us. And it's a heartbreaking thing that I've experienced too. But if we get down to the heart of it, why? Why do we cower away in what should matter most in our life? Why is it so hard for us to preach the gospel, to proclaim the name of Christ? And there can be a lot of reasons for this. Maybe we simply don't want to be that person in a group. We don't want to be that guy who's asking deep questions that the average person wouldn't ask or to, to step, step on someone's toes. Ultimately, at the heart of it, it's fear, the nagging insecurity in ourselves that we fear men more than we fear God. We fear what other people see us like. We, we fear their perceptions of us and not only that, what they would say about us. We're afraid of being looked at as the fools of the world. And we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the gospel is a stumbling block to those who do not know it. In fact, it is utter foolishness. And to the eyes of the world, we are fools. So what are we afraid of? Them seeing that more clearly? That the, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisest of mankind. I don't know about you guys, but for me, there is nothing more motivating than for me to watch a brother in Christ boldly proclaim the gospel. There's nothing that sparks the fire inside of me than to see a brother in Christ boldly walk up to someone and confront them with the truth of God's word. To display grace and love and mercy. And I remember having opportunities when I was in high school to go evangelize to people I remember being in my high school, which was a public high school, and, and talking to people about Christ in Westfield, Indiana, and people just being ashamed. That I, who are you? What are you doing? Why, why would you even talk about Jesus is so beyond this time now. He's not relevant anymore. We hear that word a lot more now. The word of God doesn't matter anymore. But when you're there in the midst of it, when you're in battle with brothers in Christ, it is so encouraging it's compelling it's motivating to want to do the same thing there's so many characters in the bible that i love men like abraham moses 
David, Jeremiah, so many people that, I, that are so desirable and, and men that I want to be like, men of faith. And outside of Jesus Christ, obviously there is one individual who I admire the most, and it is the Apostle Paul. And there are many reasons why, but the greatest reason why is because Paul's greatest desire in his life was for the name of Jesus Christ to be proclaimed everywhere he went. He was zealous for truth. He was ambitious for what is good and sought to live his life entire, entirely for the glory of the Lord. And we see this in Romans chapter 15, actually. We get a taste of the heart of Paul, almost a telescope, just a microscope, I should say, just zooming in on his heart. In Romans 15, verse 18, he says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except Christ, what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. He goes on later, a few verses later, in verse 20 of chapter 15, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been preached, but where Christ has not been preached. This is why I love Paul. He was ambitious, he was zealous. In fact, he's writing this in Corinth on his third missionary journey, this letter, Romans, to the believers in Rome that he's never met before. And we know from chapter 1 that he is desiring to reach Rome. You can see in verses 8 through 15, Paul, he's, he wants to get there. He's eager. He's writing to them, I, I long, I know I haven't been there. I've been trying, you know, things have been, been interrupted, but I will get there eventually. And the reason I want to get there is because I want you to be mutually, you and me to be mutually encouraged by each other in our faith. And because I've heard of your faith, believers in Rome. In fact, in verse 8, your faith is being proclaimed all throughout the Roman world. So Paul longed for this. He desired for that. He understood his calling in verse 1 of the very, very first verse of Romans that God had called him and that he had set him apart for the gospel. He knew his calling. And because of that, he was under obligation of both the Greeks and the Jews, to all people in the world, to both the wise and the foolish, to preach the gospel everywhere he went. This is why I love Paul. Paul was not a supernatural being. Paul was a man, but was a person just like us. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, and you have thought to yourself, oh, well, it's just Paul, you know, he's an apostle. He's clearly the next level. Don't be a fool. Paul was just like you and me, who has the same spirit living within him. But the difference is, is Paul had a deep conviction about the truth of the gospel. And it drove him. And I want that. I want that in my own life. I want that in all of our lives. Paul, he was obviously ambitious. He was zealous. And what we're going to look at in our text today is that he was bold. He was unashamed. The culture in the Roman Empire, for those of you who don't know, is it's really described in this, these two terms. It's an honor-shame culture. Honor-shame culture. And let me describe that for you. Honor-shame is simply this. Everything is superficial. The culture that the empire, that Corinth especially, and Rome lived in was this. You are, if you are wealthy, if you are popular, if you are powerful, if you have great possessions, if you have followers, then you actually matter in life. But if you suffer, if you are poor, 
If you are weak, you have no purpose in life. In fact, you probably shouldn't even exist. This was the honor-shame culture that Paul, that the early church in the first century was living in. And this culture is invading the church. False teachers are creeping up all over the place, specifically in Corinth where Paul is writing this letter. And we see in 2 Corinthians, Paul is on full-blown attack against this, this culture, the honor-shame that people would boast in their wealth and in their image instead of what really matters. And the point is this, this is the culture that America is heading towards, if not already. That people care more about what is superficial, that we care more about what what people see in us rather than the character and the life that we live, rather than what eternally has implications now in our life. We see this in our social media, We see this in our homes, we see these in our cars, we see these in the clothes that we wear. Everything that we have in this life displays a perception of people about who we are. And if that image is not based on wealth and power and a high standard of living in this world, then you shouldn't exist. This was honor, shame, and people loved it. People boasted in this, in their image. May we never be people like that. God has been so gracious to so many of us, even me in my own life, with my family, with every meal that I have on the table, with the vacations, with the people that I get to meet, the places I get to go. Everything is by the sovereign, gracious hand of God. But for me to boast in those things as if it was because of me would be utter foolishness. So what do we boast in? How, how do we respond to such a culture then and a culture now in this world? And there is answers. There are ways that believers, we can now live in light of this world. Paul does such an amazing job explaining this for us in these epistles. And for us as believers, we know this one simple thing. We can be confident. We can have assurance. We can be bold. Not because we have done it ourselves. Not because the gospel and its power lies in our hands, but because of one simple truth. God, He, God alone, has given us hope. This is what the gospel has provided. If you are not confident in what you believe, you will not be zealous, you will not be ambitious, you will not be grounded. And when the storm of life comes, you will fall. In other words, it will be impossible for you to be bold in your faith without a proper understanding of what the gospel truly is. And that's the point today. If you're going to remember anything from this sermon, it's this. The foundation of an unashamed life is rooted in a proper understanding of the gospel itself. Sadly, so many of us have a very shallow understanding of what the gospel truly is. We understand who Jesus is, what he did, what he did for us, but we neglect its power. We fail to comprehend the weight and the depth and the riches and what the treasure of the gospel truly is in Jesus Christ. An unashamed, bold, unwavering 
life and faith must be rooted in the right understanding of what the message, what the gospel is. So the goal this morning for all of us through the words of Paul is pretty simple. I want to give you encouragement. I want to give you courage to be bold in your faith about what really matters in life. But not only that, I hope this morning we can heighten our view of who God is. And in doing so, lower the view of ourselves. And not only that, I hope that this morning we get perspective. Perspective on how to view life, time, money, relationships, jobs. So what we're going to look at this morning is the foundation of a bold faith. And what Paul reveals for us in verses 16 and 17 are two ways Two reasons that you can be bold in your faith. And what does he say? Look at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of what? The gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I have no reason to be ashamed of what God has done in my life in saving me. The gospel, the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And here we have the two reasons of explaining that this is where it all starts. This is the foundation of a bold life. It is found in the gospel. And why? Here's two reasons. The first one is this. Why can you be bold in your faith? Why can you be unashamed? Because the, the gospel displays what? The power of God. Verse 16. The gospel displays the power of God. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is what the gospel is. It is the unstoppable, unmatched, divine power of the hand of God. It's supernatural. The term power, I love it in the Greek, it's, it's uh, dunamis, and it's the ability to carry out one's desires and from dunamis is where we get the English word dy dynamic or, or dynamite, which better even gives us the imagery of what the power of God is. It's, it's explosive. It's massive. It's, it's vast in his power. I love what the Puritan Stephen Charnock says. He says, the power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever he please, whatsoever his infinite wisdom may direct, and whatsoever the infinite purity of his will may resolve. As holiness is the beauty of all God's attributes, so power is that which gives life and action to all the perfections of the divine nature. It is the desire of God to be gracious. It is in his nature to be just and loving. It is through God in his power that all these things are accomplished and revealed. And we can't even fully comprehend. I love what A.W. Pink says in his book, The Attributes of God, is that we cannot fully comprehend who God is without understanding that he is all-powerful. That God, the God who created the universe by the power of his word, who existed in eternity's past, who spoke all things into existence, power that, that, that brought life into this world, the same power that Jeremiah, Jeremiah wrote of in in chapter 10, verse 12, when he says, it is he who made the earth by his power who established the world by his wisdom. Power in Hebrews 1, verse 3, that upholds the universe presently, now, and forevermore. 
power that is unmatched, unparred by anything in this world. Power that no ruler, no king, no human could ever attain. Not even Caesar himself could attain such divine power. Power that no man can possess. Power that Jesus spoke of in regards to the Sadducees who sought power over the Jewish people when he says in Matthew twenty two twenty nine, you are mistaken. Why? Because you do not understand the scriptures nor what? The power of God. The dunamis. It is this power that is able to overcome man's natural tendencies to sin and to give instead a supernatural divine life. The Bible makes this clear that Men, we can't do this on our own. In Ephesians 2, in fact, it is all by God's grace, it is by His sovereign power. There is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. You coming to church is not the gospel. You getting baptized is not the gospel. You participating in the rituals of the church is not the gospel. You guys being raised in a Christian home is not the gospel. In fact, there is nothing you can do to bring forth what God has done. And what has God done? Well, he has brought forth a power that has revealed something so great, so vast. And what is it? It is salvation. This is what the gospel is at its core. It's redemption. Deliverance from the penalty of sin. It's salvation. We have been saved. Saved from the slavery of sin. It's the power to save the worst of sinners. And Paul knew this better than anyone, right? A murderer. One who, who sought to capture Christians and imprison them. In the eyes of believers, he was seen as a terrorist. Yet Paul thought that he was righteous according to his own works and how he studied the law. And what does he say? What does Paul say about all of that? He counts it as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. This is what power does. It's the power of God to atone for sin. It's the power of God to forgive your trespasses. It's the power of God to sovereignly ordain a plan to redeem mankind from the fall in Genesis chapter 3. It's the power of God to show grace and mercy. Power to obey the law perfectly on earth in the form of man. The power to take on human flesh and as a perfect substitute die, satisfying the holy wrath of God on our behalf. Power to rise from the grave, conquering sin and death once and for all. And power to one day return for all who believe in this man, Jesus Christ. And as the prophet Jonah says, in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen? Only Him. Don't we see it? Don't you see it? The gospel is not a quick fix to your perfect life. It's not the promise to a prosperous, healthy, wealthy life. It is not a feel-good environment once in a while that we can just come and be a part of to boost our self-esteem, to make us feel like we're doing something good in this life. The gospel is not about you. It is not about your plans. It is not about your life. It is all about the saving power of God. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave now lives within all of us. Isn't that amazing? 
That's powerful. And that power is at work within us. Power to justify us, as Paul will speak of later in Romans chapters 3 through 5, that God looks at us in our wretchedness, in our sinfulness, and declares us righteous because of the righteousness of Christ given to us. Power not only to do that, but to free us from the bondage of sin. That all of us who were once dead in our sins were enslaved to the power of sin. And how did sin rule? In death. And what God does is he says, I will save you from that. I will remove this enslavement of sin that once was on you and had a hold of you. It's all about God. And this is why we can boast. This is why we can be unashamed because as a believer, it's not about us. It's never been about what we have done in saving ourselves. It's all by the sovereign hand and power of God. We see as Paul continues that it is, it is not limited to just the Hebrew nation and, and Israel as a nation, but who is it for? It's to everyone who believes. Salvation is for all people. The Jew first and the Greeks. The Jews, we understand, as like I said, the Hebrew nation of Israel. And the Greek is not simply just the Greeks, but referred to collectively as the Gentile world at the time of Paul when he was writing this, which was predominantly Greek in its influence and culture. Not only does Paul say when he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek that this was the pattern in, in Scripture that God worked through the, the Israel people and now the Gentiles have been added. But not only that, this was the pattern that, that Paul followed himself when he would go into town after town preaching the gospel. What would, he, what would he do? He would go into the synagogue. He would proclaim the name of Christ. And not only that, he would probably be rejected by them because there is a veil that lies over the hearts of the people still to this day. The Israel nation. So what would Paul do? Well, then after going to the Jews, then he would turn to the Gentiles. This was always God's plan. Isaiah 49, 6, I will also make you, Israel, a light to the nations, the Gentiles, so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. There's so much truth, so much theology that Paul is revealing for us here about who God is, and the simplicity for us now is this. Believe in this salvation. That's what Paul says to everyone who believes the saving power of God is freely given to those to these people if what if you just believe and all who put their faith and trust in this one the one who possesses all power and forgiveness they will be saved this is power unmatched unparred Power, a supernatural power that no man can possess, a power that transforms. Isn't that awesome? I'm getting fired up. I don't know about you guys, but I think you guys are. This is why we can be bold. Second reason is this, because the gospel, because the message itself not only reveals the power of God, but it reveals what? The righteousness of God. Look at verse 17 with me. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. For in what? In the gospel, in the saving power of God, the righteousness of God is revealed. That is to say, verse 16 is what the substance of the gospel is. 
It is the power of God to save. And from that, from the gospel itself, illuminates and reveals righteousness. Perfect and utter, holy righteousness. When God saves his people, when he calls them from death into life, righteousness is seen, it is perceived. Righteousness can be understood as simply what is just, what is right. It is the perfect and holy character of God, the perfect standard of morality which reflects who God is in himself. God is righteous. And what we see in chapters one through three as Paul begins to dissect this, of of understanding the righteousness of God throughout the gospel is this, no one is righteous. We see that in chapter three, right? Look at verse 10. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. Verse 12, all have turned aside and together they have become worthless. God is the only one who is righteous and God has revealed his righteousness throughout all of history. From the garden, God revealed his righteousness to Adam and Eve. And what did Adam and Eve do? They rebelled against God in their sin. God gave the law to the people of Israel, which was the perfect moral standard. It reflected his righteousness. The law was given to them perfectly to display who God is in his character. And of course, the law, what does it do? And Paul reveals that here. The law is seen as a light, a beaming light on the depravity of our hearts. And in doing so, not only that reveals the holy righteousness of God, that God is not sinful, that God cannot be around evil. He cannot be even in the presence of the sinner, but God in his righteousness reveals something amazing. What is this amazing thing that God has revealed to all of us? It is his righteousness. Look at chapter three, verse 21. This is probably the best news for any of us who believe in the gospel. Chapter three, verse 21. All are condemned, all are judged, all are held accountable to the law because it is there that the righteousness of God has been revealed. Now verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It has been revealed apart from the law of God. And the prophets in the Old Testament, they bore witness to this, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. As he keeps going, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show again, to reveal, to display and manifest what? God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And it was again to what? To show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Man, God's righteousness has been revealed in a way that is unheard of. God has shown all of us his righteousness. How? through the propitiation of his son, Jesus Christ. This is the climax of all of history. This, this moment in time when Jesus came to earth, when he, we just celebrated, when he was on the cross, satisfying the wrath of God on our behalf, what happened there? What happened on the cross? Jesus, him who knew no sin, became sin 
taking the wrath of God, satisfying it on our behalf, so that what? We might become the righteousness of God. That is power. Power that no one can accomplish in this world, only that which is divine and from and of God. It is this righteousness that has been imputed, that has been given to all of us, that God as the just judge looks on all of us who are in Christ, in the court, and we have a massive debt against the judge. We have sinned, we have failed, we have broken the law. And what does the judge do? He declares us righteous. This is our justification. This is our salvation. And because he has declared us innocent on the blood and the account of Jesus Christ, because of his righteousness, now what? We have peace with God. We have peace with him. We can now live this life knowing that even when we sin and when we fail, we know that God is, has, is seeing us as righteous. And we don't abuse that. We don't, we don't take that then as to mean, okay, great God, I am righteous. I am justified before you. I can now sin freely. No, if that is truly the case, you don't understand grace. You don't understand the grace of God because what shall we say then as Paul says in chapter 6 verse 1? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Never. Are we to sin because we are not under law anymore but under grace? By no means. What? What has happened now? What is the condition practically in our life? Because positionally now God sees us as righteous. Now practically in our life we live a righteous life in imitation to Jesus Christ, our Savior. We have become slaves of righteousness. Instead of being slaves to our sin, God has now moved us from the domain of darkness into his glorious kingdom. And now we are slaves of a much greater, more glorious, more powerful purpose. And it is our righteousness. Maybe you're thinking to yourself right now, I... I Never heard this before. I've had a very shallow understanding of the gospel that I make it more about my journey and about my experience in life and I just take Jesus and fit him in to what feels comfortable in my life. What do I need to do? What is the answer then? Well, the answer is here in verse 17. For the righteousness of God is revealed. How is it revealed? From faith to faith. Faith is the tool that we use to, to attain the grasp, the righteousness of God. It is through us believing in the power of God in his saving hand that we can actually see and witness such amazing righteousness. And when we believe from faith to faith, it reveals everything about the conviction of our heart. The phrase faith to faith, has, there's a lot of different Different views on this from scholars. Some scholars believe that it's from the faith of the Old Testament to the faith of us now in the new, part of the New Covenant in the New Testament. Some theologians believe that it's the faith of God, the faithfulness of Him now to the faith of us as people. But what I believe it really means is this, is that everything about the gospel from beginning to end, on our end, is accomplished through faith. From faith to faith, not from faith to works. It is all beginning and ending with our faith 
our complete and utter dependence on what? The gospel. That is what faith is. Faith in the Old Testament continued this, this idea of, of dependence and almost that you're leaning on something for strength. And that is what our faith is in, is that we are depending on what? The power of God for salvation. Because we understand it's not in us. Our faith is not in us, in our own strength. But rather it is in the power and it is in the righteousness that has been finally revealed to us. And we now see plainly through who? The image of Jesus Christ. It is he who displays righteousness perfectly. And it is he who we put our faith and trust in. From faith to faith. And as doing that, when we do that, we then reflect that faith and we, we, we spread that boldly. And our faith then moves laterally from one person to another. From faith now that is beginning and ending with faith to one another. As it is written, why the righteous shall live by faith. This has always been the case. God's call for us and for his people always has been faith. It's always been utter and complete dependence on his sovereignty and power. And God desires us to simply trust and rest in that power and righteousness. And the manner in which we, as people declared righteous, we are declared righteous through faith in the saving power is by faith. The work has been done. Our lives now display that transforming power that has been accomplished in our hearts. That gives me so much confidence. And it removes any reason for me to boast in myself. Because I understand that it is all God at work through me. When I overcome sin, it is God. When I boldly stand up for the word of God in Christ, my Lord, it is the Spirit of God at work in me. It is His power. In Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. It has the same implications for us now. The manner in which we live every single day is by faith. If you want to live a life of faith, then every single year we need to wake up and we need to have those resolutions ready. Okay, I'm going to live by faith this year. But if you want to do that every month, every week, every single day, every moment, we need to live in utter, complete dependence on God himself. Because he gives us our strength. He gives us a reason to live. I love what Charles Spurgeon wrote in regards to being bold and unashamed. He says this, when we preach Christ crucified, we have no reason to stammer or stutter or hesitate, or apologize. There is nothing in the gospel of which we have any cause to be ashamed. This is why we at Redemption Hill preach and proclaim the gospel found in the word of God. Why? Because that's where the power is. That's where true, lasting, eternal power is. And what is the promise for those who believe? It's eternal life. Eternal life with God, with Jesus Christ. It is here that we find our boasts and our confidence, not in anything we do or say. So the exhortation for all of us today is simple. What is it? Because of the gospel, 
just like Paul, because of its power, because of its message, what? We can boast. We don't need to be ashamed anymore. We can have confidence that the power has actually worked, that we have been saved from our sins and from eternal wrath. So stop cowering. (laughs) I'm speaking to myself too. We have no reason to cower from people. We have no reason to be like, should I preach the gospel to this person? Should I ask them if they know Christ? Ah, maybe I shouldn't. No, do it. Because the power that saved you is able to save that person. It's for all people. And every single one of us are called by God to bring this message everywhere we go, the message of salvation. This is not a call for pastors and missionaries only. But every single one of us who have been made sufficient by God to be ministers of the gospel. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. He has made him sufficient. Paul, he has made you sufficient. He has made me sufficient. We are ready for the work, but we will not be bold. We will not be ambitious. We will not be zealous unless we actually understand what the gospel is in its power. So I pray that we would just continue to remember these truths of what God has done, his power, his goodness, his righteousness in saving sinners like us. Let's pray. Father, just overwhelmed reading in your word of such power, such righteousness and glory, God, that you have given such unworthy people as us. Lord, I pray that we would be men and and women like Paul who would boldly stand up and say that we are not ashamed of the gospel. And I don't think any of us here would go out or away and say that we are ashamed, but our lives reveal that we do not give it the attention and the confidence and the boldness that we do need to have in this life. Lord, you've been so good to us. The way that you have shown your mercy and your grace to us how you have opened our eyes to understand the truth and you have revealed to us a righteousness that is unlike anything else in history that is seen through your son, Jesus Christ. Let that motivate us and let that be the foundation that we then build our life upon, our top priority in everything, that we value you and your word above all because that is where true eternal power is found. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul. We thank you for your son who has done the work in saving us from the wrath that we deserved. In your name we pray, amen.